Welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. For today's episode, I will be continuing the conversation on primary colors that begun in a previous podcast. In that episode, I had gone over subtractive and additive color mixing basics of, that, of those two modes of color mixing, as well as talking about complementary colors and some of the history surrounding those systems and those relationships between primary colors and their secondary complements. Today, I would like to get into talking more specifically about optical mixing. So we have additive, subtractive, and optical mixing. Optical mixing refers to how colors more or less mix on our retinas. There are several different kinds of optical mixing or several different ways that optical mixing takes place. And so with this episode, I'd like to talk specifically about some of those methods and also a little history that takes us back to the times of the Impressionists uh, in France. And essentially the late, mid to late 1800s, and a person by the name of Ogden Rude. Ogden Rude, he was a physicist. He was also an artist and a color theorist. He wrote a book published in 1879 called Modern Chromatics colon, with applications to art and industry. It was his intention with this book to write in a very clear way, to write a textbook, essentially, for people who were non-scientists, and specifically for artists. And it's all about color mixing, it's about the properties of light, and he wrote it in a way that summarizes current knowledge at the time about how human color vision operates. And, it, and it's written very plainly, in very plain language, and not a lot of technical mumble-jumble. He writes about Chevrol, who I've spoken about in other episodes in terms of his role in the defining of simultaneous contrast, as well as after images, or what he called successive contrast. He talks about Maxwell, James Clerk Maxwell, to be specific, and the spinning disks that he designed to be able to combine different uh, ratios of color uh, that would be spun together and create secondary colors, mix a mixture. And he also talked about Thomas Young and Hermann von Hemholtz, Hemholtz, sorry, Hemholtz, and they had just published, or within that, that time era, that general time area, the early to mid to late 1800s, had published Helmholtz and, and Young's theory of uh, trichromacy, 
I believe that was in around the 1850, 1851, somewhere in there. So he's writing in 1879, and he's summarizing current knowledge of how human color vision works and how that has been demonstrated. And then he's writing about it in terms of how pigments mix as well. So the, the Impressionist painters at the time had gotten their hands on this book and even though they had been, or, and I should go back again and I should say, he describes optical mixing for the first time that I'm aware of, although he credits some of this thinking. I don't think he was the first, but as far as like this kind of seminal book, he lays it all down and put it all together in an order. And the Impressionists uh, got their hands on this book. Rude himself was a painter. And evidently his son, I think his name was Roland, Roland Rude. Uh, Roland was also a painter, and he hung around with the, with, the, which, with the Impressionist crew. He reported back to his father that guys like Surratt were reading his book and that they actually referred to it as the Bible. Evidently, Rude hated the Impressionists so much that he exclaimed then that he wished he had never written his book. They write, if that's all I have done for art, I wish I had never written that book. My son, I always knew that a painter could see anything he wanted in nature, but I never before knew that he could see anything he chose in a book. So yeah, I guess, uh, I guess the guy really hated Monet. That made me laugh a little when I read that. But anyway, what I find to be interesting about this is like for many, many, many years, you know, since I started learning this whole art game, I always heard about the Impressionists and that they painted light. They were the painters of light. The light was the subject of the work. And it is the subject. But I don't know if they were if like if like Monet, you know, he painted these haystacks over and over at different times of the year and in different lighting conditions. So they were more or less a study of the light and the, how the light affected the colors. Did the same with cathedral, the Rouen cathedral, a number of different subjects that he went back to repeatedly. And so hence he's painting the light, knowing that they were all reading this book, Modern Chromatics by Ogden Rood, and he goes through and writes about all of these things about optics. It, it makes me think more like, yes, they're painting the light, but that Monet in those studies, he's interested in a concept known as color constancy, which I'll do, that'll be, it's kind of a big topic, so that'll be like something for another uh, podcast, but it's essentially how human color vision balances itself uh, to the environment with the available light. So in other words, humans have the capacity to identify a white object under most any light source. We can say that's white, even though if you were to literally say during sunset there's snow on a haystack, no, that's, that is not white. That's, that's like pink. That's like a shade of red. And I think that I, I, I think that this is evidence that Monet was likely exposed to those thoughts as well as other things uh, that were coming about, like persistence of vision, 
which is another one that I, I'm actually still in the process of learning a lot of, or learning about myself, and so I don't quite have a handle on it. And I'm actually learning that there isn't a lot of agreement what actually consists of persistence of vision. But I think it has implications on optical mixing, as Rude was talking about it, as Rude described that we will discuss. And basically what it is is it's a positive afterimage. So an afterimage, which we'll probably do a podcast on that too, uh, Chevrolet first identified his second law of successive contrasts or afterimages as the uh, complement or what's called the supplementary color of an object of a light source. And so you can demonstrate this by wherever you are right now. Look at a colorful object for as long as you can without blinking, maybe like a minute or two minutes if you can keep your eyes open that long. And then very quickly divert your gaze to a white or a neutral surface, like a white wall or a white piece of paper or something like that. And you'll see the inverted complementary color or what in the additive the additive method is referred to as supplemental color floating on that piece of paper or that white plane as this ghost-like, and it's, it's the exact opposite of the color that you were just looking at. In the additive system, what are referred to are supplemental colors. They're across from each other on the color wheel. They add up, hence additive, to create white. And so in modern chromatics of 1879, Rude goes into, quite, into great detail to talk about how colors mix on the retina as spectral light and how they mix as paint mixtures or ink or, or things that absorb light and reflect other portions of the spectrum. This is of great interest to me because I'm trying to wrap my head around this notion of a color wheel that is where it sees the, the nature between the subtractive method and the additive method as reciprocal and as uh, linked and that my knowledge of the additive system helps me to make adjustments in the subtractive system. And so going back to Monet, to me that adds another layer of, of interest looking at his work. If he's really trying to suss out like optically like what is actually happening here rather than just making pretty pictures of like a pond or something. That to me is a lot more interesting to dive into as far as like intellectually and looking at like a painting or something. So optical mixing refers to little particles of color, or they, they can be multiple sizes, small to big, let's say, particles of different colors that are placed side by side and around each other. And when we see them, especially at a distance, they mix optically on our retinas. So cyan and yellow will mix to make a green color. So if you think of CMYK printing, the cyan and the yellow, there is no green ink in my printer. And so if I'm printing something and I'm seeing green, I'm seeing lots of little dots that are cyan and yellow that are right next to each other and they're very small so I can't see them individually so it, my mind perceives the color green 
But that is not to say that we're engaged in the additive system per se. It's still, uh, yeah, this is where it gets complicated. So all optical color mixing is subtractive because we're working with pigments. So those two colors of cyan and yellow form green in my mind because they're reflecting, in cyan's case, blue and green wavelengths, hence cyan. And in yellow's case, yellow is the product of the reflectance of green and red wavelengths. So the cyan is reflecting green, the yellow is reflecting green. Therefore, there's more green being reflected back into my eye and perceived by my mind than there are the blue and the red wavelengths that are also coming. So we perceive it as green, but there is some blue and and, uh, red wavelengths in there that are actually effectively like dulling the green. So the green isn't as vibrant as it could be with the total absence of any blue or, or red light. And so that kind of speaks to the limitations of subtractive color mixing and hence uh, how subtractive colors are limited in terms of brightness and chromaticity that, that can be achieved like on a computer screen or a television. There's a much greater bucket of colors that uh, we can perceive that can't be replicated in in subtractive uh, color mixing, which points to some of the troubles between working digitally and then printing that digital image out onto a piece of paper. You're, you're moving from the additive system to the subtractive system. And that's a whole can of worms too, but we'll get into on another uh, episode because there's, there's a fascinating history about how that has been and is being tackled and tried to figure out. So yeah, different types of optical color mixing include glazing, so mixing a pigment into a clear or translucent medium and applying that over other colors or color a color or multiple colors. You can have multiple glazes, and so the light will penetrate through the glazes and get to the surface color and then refl- reflect back out through the glazes again, and so those glazes, each layer will be effectively absorbing or subtracting certain wavelengths and uh, reflecting others. And so glazing is a way of doing that. And we'll go into more on glazing in future podcasts uh, because there's some interesting stuff there too in terms of film of, of oil has actually two surfaces, the top and the bottom. So the way light goes through it and bounces off the top layer and the bottom layer and how that interacts can create what are called interference colors and all sorts of fun stuff. Yeah, and there's stories about how Titian and the Venetian painters would glaze using their hands. They they use their the palms of their hands and their fingers to wipe glazes of color onto their paintings because they could apply it more thinly and and more evenly than they could with a brush. Scumbling is a form of optical mixing 
or what is known, I should, I, I should actually add that a lot of this is referred to as delusive blending. So it's, it's blending of colors by putting little dots or particles next to each other, and, and they delusively blend, as opposed to mixing them on a palette uh, where it's all one big goop of one color. So scumbling is like when you have an effect where, let's say, the texture of the canvas has got hills and valleys, and it's painted all one color, and then you take another color that's kind of dry on the brush, and you go across and you just hit the tops of the hills the peaks and it just kind of puts the paint on like in a freckled way and so you're not covering up the underlayer or you can dust it on take a brush a dry brush and and kind of dab it on so the brush marks are leaving like these little freckly marks and you can build up a texture doing that most famously pointillism is a type of optical mixing also known by a bigger umbrella term called divisionism or chromoluminarianism. Whatever that word is, that's the umbrella term is divisionism. So divisionism, this way of painting, and, if, and especially if you've looked at like Van Gogh's work, this uh, pointillism involves like little dots. Surratt made these paintings with a bunch of little dots, little pinpoints, right? Divisionism is a term that covers a much more wide uh, scope of different types of mark making. So you can have like these patches of paint over other fields of color. And if you look at like Van Gogh's paintings and stuff, that he was really big on that, like with all these little larger brush marks that all went together. Yet as if you looked at the, his paintings from a distance, they, they tend to mix optically. And then when you get up close to them, you can see the texture, almost as if each brush mark is like a little sculpture of sorts. One of the cool things about Surratt, I think, is that he tended to follow a, a pattern of sorts or a recipe almost with the arrangement of his dots. And so with that painting in the Chicago Art Institute, Sunday Afternoon in the Park, or La Grande Jatte, I think I'm saying that, well, whatever. The one, the painting that was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that painting shows a park scene, and uh, the way the colors are arranged, not entirely, but fairly consistently, is that he's got different dots in different orders. And so he'll have like a dot for the local color of the object. So like if the person is wearing like a red shirt, he's got dots of red. And then next to those dot, little dots of red, he'll intersperse small dots of the color of the light source. So like an orangeish yellow. And then other dots that are from the reflected light of of nearby objects so the local color of the grass that the person is sitting on maybe or other objects that are nearby other people those uh, he's got dots reflected into the into the composition and then he's got a, another set of dots that are the complement of the light source so blues and violets so for me learning that and observing it in the work is you know makes it that much more of an in-depth experience because it's not just like he was sitting there just putting a bunch of dots everywhere and and just kind of going for it he had a plan and much of it from what i understand was through knowledge derived from rude's book modern chromatics and so back to the contents of that and what rude is kind of summarizing in the book is to say 
several things. We've discussed on the podcast before the trichromatic theory of color vision, where Thomas Young and Hermann von Helmholtz theorized, and I think it later proven that there are light-sensitive cone cells that respond to different wavelengths of uh, white light to produce all the colors that we can see, and they are chiefly sensitive to uh, red, greens, and blues. Those are the three types of cone cells. There is some redundancy and overlap in, in those sensitivities. They're, like the cones that are sensitive to the long wavelengths of red, those are what they're most sensitive to, but they can also detect wavelengths of green and blue as well. It's just marginal, fractional, and same with the green and same with the blue. So if your green cones are active, you're able to perceive some of the blue range and the red range with those cones. Rude also writes about the work of James Maxwell, who was a physicist and, uh, yeah, I've heard him described as a link between Newton and Einstein in terms of our understanding of the nature of light as it works both as a wavelength and a particle, which the particle is the photon that the waves of electromagnetic energy are carrying. And Maxwell, Maxwell designed these disks, so they're called Maxwell's disks, and basically had like a motor, like a crank motor maybe, just something simple that you could crank and turn, and he made these uh, colored disks, uh, painted different colors, and he, let's say, if you imagine like a circle disk, and if you mark the center and you cut like a slit in the disk from the center hole, out so you have like a radius right and you do this with a with a red with a green you know with whatever colors and then you put the discs together you can slide them together so that more or less of the red and the green are showing so you could have it be 50 percent or 40 60 or whatever and then you put this disc on the little motor wheel and you crank it and it starts spinning and those two colors merge optically to create a second color. It would be like probably like a neutral brown or a black in the case of red and green mixing. This is similar to if you've ever noticed like a car tire spinning as you're going down the freeway and the spokes of the wheel merge into what looks to be like a solid disc. And I, I think that this has to do with a phenomenon, like I said earlier, called persistence of vision, but I have to look into that more. Persistence of vision, like I said, is, is the opposite of an after effect. So if you stare at something, the classic example is to look at like a, a dark object on a bright background. And if you close your eyes and even hold your hand over your eyes, you'll be able to see that image in your mind as this floating image where it'll continue being the dark object on the bright background. And some of the times other colors will enter into that and stuff like that. But but basically it's theorized that that this phenomenon is like how film works, like movies, and that there's so many frames per second and that our minds don't perceive the spaces between the pictures, the frames, 
because we, our vision from frame to frame persists, and or our perception, I should say, the perception of the image persists while it disappears before the new image takes its place. That's so we can watch a movie without getting like seasick. Because if you think about it, I'd have to figure out what those spaces are. But there's probably a, within an hour of movie, there's probably a couple of minutes where it's where you're not seeing anything. But anyway, I think that this could be at the core of how colors mix optically as well. That this uh, blending takes place as we merge these colors in our mind because the memory of the one interjects, stamps itself onto the the memory of the other color, and hence they mix optically to create a, a second color. So thinking about optical color mixing, how I was talking about the subtractive and additive models of paint mixing. So, so the way they're reciprocal is that if I'm mixing a color on my paint palette, what I'm seeing are various mixtures of red, green, blue wavelengths projecting off of reflecting off of that substance and appearing in my mind and the combinations of those pigments of those colors I should say are the adding of light wavelengths to create a color now the idea of delusive blending or pointillism CMYK printing is that there's like these little dots that are put next to each other, so the cyan and the yellow make green. Well, the same could be said for pigments and dyes and inks and anything or any type of colorful material that's used in like art and design, making images. And that is to say that the mineral that is crushed up for ultra, ultramarine blue are just become like very small particles that are then mixed with linseed oil or acrylic or whatever the medium is but those particles we just can't see them they're so small they're we can't see that they're all separate in the case of dyes the particles might be even smaller than ground mineral pigments chromophore is the name for the molecules of things that give off color chromophore and in the case of ultramarine blue a color like ultramarine blue, like synthetic ultramarine blue, I should add, uh, sometimes known as French ultramarine. That color in the blue family is is much closer to, to violet than it is to green. And I've seen ultramarine blues, actually, that almost just look like violet. One thing about Rude's book, when he's talking about Thomas Young's, Helmholtz's theory of tri chromacy he consistently throughout the book lists red green and violet as the primary colors of light as opposed to red green and blue rgb however checking like thomas young's uh, color uh, triangle that he made he does list the primaries there as red green and blue so i still have a little bit of research a little Sherlock Holmes stuff going on to try to determine I don't know where where that shift occurred they commonly refer to the lower wavelengths of light affecting the short wavelengths I should say 
and the short wavelength cones as being blue and violet sensitive. Those are the shortest wavelengths. And I've read or I've, I've encountered information like that our eyes, even though violet is among the, the shorter wavelengths, our cones are not actually as sensitive to violet. And in fact, the sky would not be blue if our eyes were more sensitive to that lower range and that the sky would be violet basically instead of blue because evidently there's many more wavelengths of violet scattered in the sky than there are blue ones. That'll be an episode centering on Homer, how he refers to the the color of the ocean as the wine-dark sea several times in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. So back to thinking about our color wheel and uh, the reciprocal nature of the additive and subtractive color mixing method, we have red, green, and blue, or violet. So we're talking about a blue that is very much towards violet. And then the secondaries are CMY, cyan, magenta, and yellow, which are the primaries of uh, the subtractive mixing method. And so using this as a guide while I'm mixing paint and thinking about the particles that could be microscopic or depending on how finely the pigments are ground. But regardless, the, the individual pigments, just like in pointillism and CMYK printing, they're little dots, they're little specks of things that are reflecting certain wavelengths of light. And so if, I'm, if I have my ultramarine blue and I'm thinking that yellow is the complement, so maybe a yellow that is uh, like azo yellow or hansa yellow on the cooler side of yellow, mixing those two together will place the pigment particles side by side and, and amongst each other within the, the goo of the, of the paint or the ink or whatever the medium is. And those particles will reflect light that we will perceive via the additive color mixing method in our mind. So the blue in this case, our, our synthetic ultramarine blue, which I believe was discovered in the mid-1800s as deposits or leftover stuff on the inside of kilns that they used to bake lime. That could be right or wrong. But yes, so the traditional lapis lapis lazuli-derived ultramarine blue, which is like the historic stuff from this uh, lapis lazuli stone that's mined mainly in Afghanistan, that is a more powdery blue, a lighter blue when it's ground. Actually, it kind of depends on how it's ground and the type of blue that you get out of it. Whereas this uh, synthetic one that I believe was discovered in these lime kilns or noticed in the early 1800s, mid, early mid 1800s, that leans more towards the violet uh, side of the family of the blue hues. So we're looking at a violety blue, but basically that blue is going to be absorbing red and green wavelengths and it's going to be reflecting 
blue wavelengths, right? And or violet, if we think about Ogden Rood and and his RGV primary colors of light. And on the other side of the color wheel from that is is yellow. So blue and yellow, yeah, in this method are technically complementary. And so mixing that yellow, placing those yellow pigments, uh, particles next to the blue, the yellow will be absorbing blue light, reflecting red and green wavelengths. And so since the, the blue and yellow together are respectively absorbing red and green for the blue and then blue for the yellow, it's basically you're getting towards black because it's it's that mixture is absorbing most of the spectrum and it's reflecting parts of the spectrum as well the blue is re- reflecting blue and the yellow is reflecting red and green so there again we have the blue red and green trifecta of complementary colors which mix together to create white but if there's not a lot of light, white reads as gray. So like if you look at a cloud in the sky and it's a puffy white cloud, that cloud, the water droplets and various elements inside the cloud are scattering and reflecting light and recombining all the wavelengths back into white light. But if the cloud is dense and not a lot of light is actually coming through it, it's still being scattered at an equal rate. It's just that it's darker. There's less light to be perceived. So we see it as a gray cloud or a dark black thundercloud. So back to our attempt at mixing black with, with ultramarine blue and, and Hansa yellow. I believe there's going to be a certain amount of green wavelengths that are going to be a little bit more dominant in the reflection. So that mixture is going to read as a, as a dark green. So then mixing in something like a quinacrinone magenta or an alizarin crimson, which it's in the red family, but that magenta is complementary to the green. And so the magenta will cancel out that green in our mixture. There's a pathway towards mixing like a, a black color. I guess we refer to those as like chromatic blacks because you can make it perfectly neutral but you can then choose to mix in a little bit more of the ultramarine. So you got like a, bl- a black that kind of tips towards blue or violet. And so the black can have some nuance to it if, if you want, you know, that effect. So basically this color model represents is a way of thinking about this idea that all color is optical mixing. It's just that Traditionally, like with Surratt or whatever, with the dots or Van Gogh with the brush marks, or those are just bigger marks. But the idea that these small particles, and they can be like microscopic, are still behaving in the same way. And therefore, this notion of an attempt towards trying to arrive at a color by mixing the fewest colors together is like a, a challenge or something. I can predict what might be happening by by thinking about the wavelengths that each color is uh, reflecting. Because even though we have these primary colors per se, the colors that you buy in tubes of paint 
don't exactly correspond to the true primaries. So in order to mix like a black or a neutral color, they got to be massaged a little bit. Although some of them are pretty close to like exact complements, like alizarin crimson and thalol green, that mixes. So we've got like a magenta and a, and a green, and that will make, in my experience, like a true black color. This has been the second part of an ongoing conversation about primary colors, their history, and how the additive and subtractive color wheel, color mixing methods work in a reciprocal manner. In terms of optical mixing, I think the thing that, that I keep coming back to is that when considering that we have like pigments or dyes, very small particles, versus larger dots or pieces of, like if you imagine a colored pencil being scratched across a piece of paper, it's leaving trace amounts and letting the paper read through as well, and thus optically mixing with the paper. It has to do with the scale of the particles, how the spaces between the particles allow other colors to mix visually on our retinas. So in the case of the white substrate and putting oil paint, taking that pigment and putting it into a linseed oil medium and thus having a larger mass with the same amount of pigments, I guess it would be. It's just that they're spread out more. So hence it creates what we refer to as like a translucent glaze. Part of my thinking on this generated by recent readings of a book called uh, Color for the Sciences by Jan Koenderink. In Koenderink's book, in one part, he mentions this idea of scale, and it's how we think about it. Like a tree at human scale is these pieces like leaves, and then we can see the space between them. But if we were to increase that scale, we wouldn't see if we were to increase our scale in relationship to that tree, those spaces between the leaves wouldn't be as apparent. So that's what's happening, more microscopic level, or even you know pointillism or something, or CMYK printing, where it's maybe not so much microscopic, it's still smaller than what we're able to perceive the spaces between them with our human color vision. So it's all about th trying to think about the scale of the particles that are reflecting color and how they're sitting next to each other or on top of different surfaces and how, like in the case of glazing or this delusive blending, how those surfaces reflect a white piece of paper or white photo paper or whatever, you know, white thing. It has to do with equating the brightness of the reflectivity with the value of that potential reflection. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this kind of stuff. I'll be talking more about Corenderink's book. He goes into great detail, especially in terms of a person by the name of Wilhelm Otzwald. And so this idea of uh, the primary colors part two is this episode. Part one was more about additive and subtractive uh, color mixing. The future parts will come to include... Uh, casting a larger net over where some of these concepts are coming from and how they may be working 
and going into more depth on that. Like in Coindering's book, he's got a chapter, Otswald's uh, RGB color model, which is really interesting in how it explains a lot of visual phenomenon in printing and in, well, in both the additive and subtractive um, methods. And also I'll keep looking into this idea of persistence of vision and how that may be affecting how these colors merge in our minds. I'm not sure about that. The other thing that I read about it is it could explain how, like, blinking, how most of the time we're not aware of blinking, but it's an instant where our eyes are closed and it's dark, and how that is not noticeable. So the image persists while the blink is going on. And Yeah, and then also back to our mixture of trying to attain a black color by mixing ultramarine blue and azo yellow, which at the end I talked about maybe having to add some magenta to that mixture because that mixture may ultimately reflect or be perceived as a greenish tone and not a true black. And part of that could be, like I said, I'm still learning about this stuff, so, but part of it could include taken into account a phenomena called the Purkinje shift, which I will have an episode as to how it relates. Perhaps why Mary's robe is blue, or one of the reasons maybe that it's blue in Christian art, ultramarine blue. But this Purkinje shift describes or theorizes how our red cones become less perceptive in low light. And so Blues and greens and violets will be will remain more vivid in perception. And so if you think of our mixture of yellow and blue going down in value, it's reflecting less light. And yellow, our perception of yellow, is the result of red and green wavelengths stimulating the cones in our eyes, on our retinas. As that value decreases, the brightness, the, the color itself, gets more towards black, the red cones become less active. Therefore, that yellow, which is the product of red and green, our green cones, they remain strong and start to perceive the green in that yellow as the red diminishes. So it could be that that color actually does go straight towards a true neutral black. It's just that human color vision lacks the capability to perceive it. So hence, having to add a little bit of red in there to help out those red cones, wake them up a little bit, or massage it with magenta. Yeah, so there's a couple of sneak peeks at what may come in the future in this podcast, trying to wrap our heads around this idea of visual art and design and and perception. A last thought, one thing that will become apparent in this series of podcasts too is questions and history related to the relationship between sound and light, our perception of electromagnetic energy as a wave and our perception of sound as a wave. And then the the attempts over the centuries to not equate the two, but to dis- to use the terminology of sound and music to describe color and composition in the visual arts and design. And so maybe I'll leave you here with thinking about optical mixing, this notion of the space between the particles playing as much a role in our perception of the color as it's as significant a role, the space between the pigments, as are the pigments themselves. So I thought... Bach, maybe Google Bach's 
Toccata and Fugue in D minor. That's a piece that, in my mind, relies heavily on the spaces between the notes to really bring it home. And then also I was thinking uh, Franz Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2, the space between the notes, what that brings to the piece. So yes, Bach, Toccata, and Fugue in D minor. If you Google that, there's a crazy one on YouTube where they've got these sound bars, like this visual, like old school 1980s graphics going with it. So try and find that one. It's really cool. And then, yeah, Liszt, Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2. If you're going to listen to that, it's almost mandatory that you have to listen to the Mel Blanc 1950s Daffy Duck's Rhapsody. I'm talking like Daffy Duck. Anyway, Mel Blanc, Daffy Duck's Rhapsody. Check that out. Yes. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested and follow Chromosphere, the Color Theory Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinsky for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinsky again for their production, consulting, and editing.